What was the toughest part about starting that first company? Well, the toughest part was definitely the initial capital raise. I I certainly didn't have enough money in my own personal bank to jump out there and do it. So uh, I, I did have to seek uh, help from other investors. I, I never opted to take debt and uh, borrow from the SBA or others. Now, once we got up and running, I did file for and receive a few business loans, working capital type loans and things like that. But that money was never spent in the startup mode. So, you know, raising that first small, very small pile of cash to get the thing started was the biggest challenge. The following is my conversation with Doug Thorpe. Doug is a lifelong student and model of effective and inspiring leadership and drawing on over 30 years of experience in military, corporate, and nonprofit roles. His mastery as an executive coach has impacted leaders in numerous industries and global locations. Throughout his early experiences as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army and 20 years in senior roles in banking, including three mergers, He's gained valuable frontline leadership experience, which ultimately led him to becoming a passionate entrepreneur that founded and led three different entrepreneurial startups and several successful nonprofit organizations. Enjoy our conversation. Doug, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. Hey, you're very welcome, Daniel. Happy to be here. Happy that you're here as well, and always happy to have a great entrepreneur like yourself on the show. And entrepreneurs have a lot of really fun and exciting things to talk about. And a lot of things and a lot of questions that I wanted to discuss, but just to get started, I have a quick question. So you served in the army. Thank you for your service. And I have to ask as an entrepreneur, what impact did the army have on you? Well, I think the whole military experience was largely centered on the creation and understanding of leadership. I did get the chance to serve as an officer and in preparing for that, I was submitted to a lot of training, a lot of uh, classroom, and also, more importantly, a lot of practical exercises in leading small teams and large organizations. So bringing forward that leadership experience into all of the businesses I've had a chance to run, it, uh, you know, it's, it's easily summed up and said to have a successful business, you got to have money and people and, and working both sides of that is the way to build a successful business. You can't have one without the other. And when you've got people, you need leadership. Got it. I want to touch upon a quick thing that you just said. You said to build a successful business, you need money and you need people. Are either of those more important? Well, I would argue, you know, a lot of people, when you go that way, you you get into a chicken and egg kind of scenario. And there's no no doubt that a lot of founder entrepreneurs start as, you know, sole proprietors. And so they're working hard to build the money, grow the money and the reserve. But if you really want to scale, you end up needing to add people one way or another. You either need to clone yourself, not literally, but figuratively, and uh, you need to build a, an organization around the growth that might be happening in your business. And, you know, one begets the other. And if you start falling short in one area, it's going to hurt the other. You know, I may, maybe an argument could be made. The most important thing is, you know, a willingness to learn a skill set, the actual skill set, then the money and then bring on people. So 
definitely an interesting scenario and something that's dynamic by the business, but definitely something that each entrepreneur should keep in mind. So I appreciate the thought around there. Another note regarding the army. So you spoke a little bit about the service and the work that you kind of got to do there. Are any, are there any themes that you learned about in the army that, you know, really progressed to life or business? Well, I think one of the biggest lessons, in fact, it's interesting you asked that. I was talking to somebody just last week about this. As a, as a young officer going into the Army, you're going to be confronted with people that work for you that have way more seniority, way more experience. And the way you deal with those people immediately dictates your opportunity for success. And I see that same dynamic happening in business today. I I happen to do a lot of work with entrepreneurial acquisition. That is people that want to be entrepreneurs, but they're doing it by acquisition, not by startup, Mm -hmm. which means they're taking money that they've got that they are willing to invest and they're finding a business that might be for sale. And then they're uh, organizing that purchase transaction, Mm -hmm. then they go to work in the business and immediately they're going to run into people that have been working there for years, sometimes their whole life. They're going to, they've got a lot more experience about the business. They've got some attitudes and ideas about the way things ought to be. Mm -hmm. And you as a brand new owner, I don't care how old you may be, you have to walk a thin line on trying to make change organize in a new way and and maybe steer a a course for a new direction, but keep those guys on the boat, you know, keep them going with you and have them have buy-in. And again, I would argue that the ability to make those kind of smooth transitions with people that know a lot more, have a lot more experience than you might is a, a real special skill to put in a leadership toolkit. Yep, and definitely something that you learn with experience. And you said that there's people that come in and they have to kind of understand a little bit more about the entrepreneurial attitude. Maybe I'll phrase it as the entrepreneurial enthusiasm that they really have to learn more about and something you definitely really learn more about once you dip your toe in the pool and really get behind the wheel of running a business. Because I think there's a difference between kind of doing something in operations versus seeing something from the top. And I think once you get your first dose of seeing something from the top, you have kind of that oh shit moment where, okay, there's actually a lot of moving parts here. And right, right. the seasoned entrepreneur is just kind of chuckling a little bit, see, seeing uh, an operator try to learn the rope. So an interesting note on there, but another thing that I wanted to get into back regarding your career. So after the army, you actually jumped into industry and worked in banking after, for a little bit. So why the jump to banking after the army? Well, to be really honest, I was uh, a, a ripe old uh, 20, what would I have been, 26 years old at the time after I got out of service and <clears throat> really had no flipping idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Mm-hmm. good friend of mine from college had gone to work at this particular bank. Uh, she called me and she knew I was looking and she said, hey, why don't you come talk to us? We're always looking for people like you that could maybe jump in our management program. And that's exactly what I did. And 20 years later, I uh, left banking. (laughs) So I I hung around in, in banking, learned many, many things that were incredibly valuable. And I, I use them to this day. The experiences I had as a banker have helped propel my own 
uh, coaching and business advisory service that I offer. Fair. You know, a quick note on that, knowing what you know now, and we'll get into a few of the entrepreneurial ventures that you've been up to. Do you wish that after the army, you went straight into entrepreneurship or do you think that corporate experience was good for you? I think the corporate experience was very good for me in a lot of ways, um, not just the practical and technical knowledge about what it meant to engage a banker and help your business by having a good banking relationship. And I realize things about banks have changed over the years and there's a lot of you know pros and cons today, but nonetheless, they are still a source of capital if, uh, if push comes to shove. And so having that relationship is important. But the interesting thing for me is I had the very happy accident of going to work for a bank that happened to be very well run. And I had a MBA in leadership and organizational uh, leadership by working at my particular bank. Our senior leadership team from the chairman all the way down was uh, very good. They knew how to develop people. They knew how to run a well-oiled machine. And um, to give you the bottom line, our bank during my time there, not directly attributed to me by any means, but I had the joy of being on a team that ran off 64 consecutive quarters of earnings growth. Wow. 16 years of earnings growth that we experienced as a bank. And, you know, if you're tracking anything in the economy, stock markets, other markets, otherwise, 16 years, you're going to have some ups and downs during that period. And we had it. We had two oil busts. We had two real estate busts. We had uh, everything in between. And we still yet knew how to continue growing our earnings as a bank. And, and that's not because we beat people up and charge silly, ridiculous rates. We didn't. We built strong relationships with our customers. We provided a lot of service and a lot of help. And people just gravitated to us. You know, a lot of banks these days, uh, I won't get too into it as I'm not a financial expert, but they're struggling in you know a multitude of ways. So Maybe if any of them are looking for a new CEO or a new chairman, uh, maybe float Doug's name in that circle. Uh, sixteen years of sixteen years of consecutive earnings growth is you know phenomenal and incredible, and I think something that I'm an optimist, but pessimistically I'll say is something are really difficult to accomplish. So kudos on that, and maybe something that a lot of banks could learn from, and maybe learn from you there. So appreciate you talking a little bit about your career. But the other thing that I wanted to discuss, as I mentioned earlier, was some of your entrepreneurial ventures. So you're a multipreneur, and I want to know, what was the toughest part about starting that first company? Well, the toughest part was definitely the initial capital raise. I, I certainly didn't have enough money in my own personal bank to jump out there and do it. So uh, I, I did have to seek uh, help from other investors. I I never opted to take debt and uh, borrow from the SBA or others. Now, once we got up and running, I did uh, file for and receive a few business loans, working capital type loans and things like that. But that money was never spent in the startup mode. So, you know, raising that first uh, 
small, very small pile of cash to get the thing started was the biggest challenge. So one of the things that you just said was in the beginning, you didn't really, you didn't really go about raising debt and you focused mo like mostly raising equity. Is there a reason you avoided that in the beginning? Uh, probably to be honest, and this is going to sound really ironic, but the irony was I wasn't sure that, that really how to do it. And being a, a former banker, I guess I had, uh, done a negative confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. I felt that a startup like mine would never qualify for a bank loan. So I, I didn't even try. I, I just kind of self-selected and, and went the equity route to try to get the thing going. I think that's a fair question from a seasoned banker. On another note regarding entrepreneurship, from everything that you've done and all the work that you've, you've been through, what's the most painful entrepreneurial lesson that you've learned? Uh, I talk about this a lot on my show. Uh, my biggest enterprise, if you want to say it that way, was one that our service offering was one of those examples of something that looked phenomenal on paper, mm -hmm. but was not truthfully well ever well received in the marketplace. And at the time, there was a move to follow the concept and there were four other enterprises that sprung up across the U.S. national landscape that we, the five of us were competing against each other for the same service, same idea. And truth be told, everybody struggled with it. And when the crash of 08 happened, all of us got shut down because of the fallout of that financial crash. And in a retrospective opportunity, three out of the five of us got together for dinner one night and, and just started commiserating about the journey and the experience. And we all came to the agreement that we all liked our idea and we could rationalize it, we could demonstrate it, we could map it out on paper, but in at the end of the day, the market didn't like it. Nobody was buying. <laughs> so, and the point in all that is, if you're an entrepreneur genuinely thinking about a startup, test your idea. Go go do some trial uh, launches, find some test case customers, get people bought in, because you might be surprised to find that the thing you have as an idea is does not have all its legs to stand up in the market. It may have some parts, but not all. And if you go headlong into your idea, you you may have an uphill climb. I'm actually really happy you brought that up because the next question I wanted to ask is what could people do? So when they think they have something great on paper, so appreciate you sharing a bit there, but to go one level deeper, you know, I know that as you mentioned, there's difference between something that looks great on paper and, you know, something in the marketplace. And oftentimes that initial market launch can be a big slap in the face to a lot of entrepreneurs who thought that their product was really promising. So say, for example, if you're advising an entrepreneur that says that they have this great product, how would you guide them when it comes to really testing their product to see if it could be viable for their market? Well, it, it really does come down to finding your initial handful of clients or customers. See if you can, either through word of mouth or through a network of some sort or through a professional trade association, some grouping of people that might be your avatars, 
try to penetrate that, get somebody's attention and, and let them try it out. And uh, you might have to give it away for free for a little while just to get it over the goal line and get people thinking about it. But um, it, it, that is the direct way. The, the, the market ultimately dictates what works and what does not. Mm-hmm. And you can even talk about, you know, all these disruptors that have come along. Well, the reality is their idea was appealing to the market when, when the market learned it understood it and figured it out, they were very excited. And, you know, I'm thinking of like the Ubers of the world or the Airbnbs, you know, again, on paper, they, they sound like interesting ideas, but I think in both of those cases, early adoption was not that widespread. People were going, what? I'm going to go live in somebody's house for the weekend. I, yeah, no, I don't think that's a cool idea, but eventually it, it proved out. And, I just came from a business trip at a very nice Airbnb over in Florida, and we spent three days in, in this amazing house near the beach, and uh, it was it was a great event, you know. But a couple of years ago, I don't think anybody would have thought about moving into somebody else's house, even on a temporary basis. You know, near the beach in Florida sounds great, but it reminds me of a quote that uh, Brian Chersky actually said, the founder of Airbnb, when early on they were looking to get fundraising for Airbnb, a lot of investors had similar rebuttals in the sense that they were saying, oh, you know, people don't want to go live in a stranger's house for a weekend. And what he said, really interesting. I mean, obviously, after the fact, Airbnb, this huge billion dollar company, I mean, I can pretty much say whatever they want at this point. But one of the cool things that he said was, you know, obviously, they ended up being right in this business model was viable. But he said that the big thing that shows that investors didn't consider early on is that they were just looking at the marketplace now. They didn't take into account that the marketplace could change. So you said that one thing that's interesting is that, you know, when you're investing in something, you have to take into account not a static environment, but a dynamic environment and consider how the world may change and ultimately how that may affect. So I thought that was a really interesting example. And I really appreciate bringing up Airbnb. It just reminds me of a, of a funny Brian story, but great note on there. Yep. Well, let me, if I could, let me add one more note on that. And I'm thinking of another project I attempted to launch many, many years ago. It was a, it was a large uh, real estate development idea. We were going to, my partners and I wanted to build a large sports center for uh, amateur leagues to use. And when we started um, searching for equity partners and investors in the deal, Time and time and time and time again, what I would get from the target investor I was talking to, no, I don't understand this. I only invest in what I understand. Mm-hmm. And that just really rang really loud and clear in my ears. So my point being, if, if you're an entrepreneur, you've got a startup idea, be careful who you approach because you might just be wasting their time and yours both if if they are really rigidly set in a particular industry or a particular niche and you, you think you're trying to approach them with a brand new sort of somewhat left field idea, you might get that quick answer. No, we only do what we know. Got it. Well, I appreciate the pun there, the left field pun, but I think it's a great note and great advice to entrepreneurs before they consider fundraising because certainly an integral part of the process, uh, but also something to consider is maybe approach funds that have experience in your area because I think they may be the ones that are a little more receptive to the ideas that you have. So 
appreciate the note on there. Another thing that I wanted to discuss, so you're also an executive coach and I'm sure you have plenty of experience working with executives, but from your experience, what's one thing that executives get wrong these days? Well, one of the biggest challenges I run into, and I likewise talk about this on, on my own show, well, people that are in so-called corporate executive roles, they have typically risen up through the ranks. And if you go all the way back to their early days in their career, they were an individual contributor. Mm -hmm. So they were working hard, doing good work, and they got recognized for the expertise they were uh, creating and delivering. So they got promoted to supervisor. Everybody said, well, you're the brightest bulb on our string here, so let's make you the supervisor. And they muddle through that and they do okay with it. And then they get recognized yet again and, and their journey in management and leadership begins. The challenge is that that kind of person may go through two, three, four promotions before the company ever wakes up and says, maybe we ought to teach them how to be a leader. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, they might have burned six, eight, 10 years off the clock of managing smaller teams and probably ruining other people's careers in the process, mm -hmm. alienating people, getting it wrong, and then they finally get it right. And so the challenge for those that are now in senior leadership roles, there's two things I usually challenge them to do. Number one, work on leading themselves. They need to define what it means to be a leader and they need to answer the question for themselves. How do you want to show up? That, that's job one when we get together. And then the second part is what are you doing to develop other leaders? And that's often a, a tall climb that many people haven't even begun thinking about. I'm happy that you brought that up because actually a following question that I wanted to ask there, say for example, someone's an individual contributor and they make that first promotion to say supervisor. At that point, what can a company or that person do to you know teach, teach the person or teach themselves to be a great leader? Well, I encourage people to start looking for mentors. If, if you're not accustomed or if you don't have a tradition in your own life about having a mentor or several, now that would be the time to start. And I encourage people to look around the immediate vicinity. You know, maybe there's somebody at the company already that's a little more senior, a little more experienced that would be more than happy to come alongside and be a mentor to you. When I bring this up, a lot of times individuals will tell me, gee, Doug, I'm afraid, you know, they're, they're crazy busy. I, I hate to even ask them because I already know what their calendar looks like. And my argument is, well, all they can do is say no, you know. And if um, you're pleasantly surprised and they say yes, they may give you the parameters. They may say, I could probably only meet with you once a month, but I, I'll be happy to do that. Well, guess what? Take it you know, use it if, if that's what you get. And I've, I've been doing executive coaching now for 12 or 14 years uh, formally. And I have never had anybody got turned down flat out when they ask for mentorship help. And sometimes you don't have to ask for just some giant 
relationship commitment, but you can ask for a, a specific topic. You can go up to somebody and say, you seem to do really well solving conflict. Would you mind mentoring me, showing me, sharing with me how you got to be so good at doing that? And you can you can focus on key attributes and key topics rather than just some giant picture of what does the world look like today? You know, that kind of thing. Got it. That's great advice there. And I think mentorship is certainly huge. But on another note, kind of regarding executives and leadership, I know a lot of the people that you've gotten to work with and a lot of the companies that you've gotten to work with happen to be, you know, small organizations, medium-sized companies or kind of large companies. From your experience, what's the shift like from running a small company to running a large one? Well, I, I think if, if you are the entrepreneur that's owning a smaller company, there's a tremendous temptation to try to do it all. And the best run smaller companies gravitate toward a the development of a leadership team that can run the business on a day-to-day basis while the owner I'm not going to say steps away, but maybe the better way to say it is kind of rises above the the minutia of the day Mm -hmm. and is able to keep their eye on strategic thinking, new growth opportunities, new methods, new systems, new opportunities. And if you're, if you're sucked into the weeds of your small business, you, you don't have time or visibility on those bigger things that could be happening. Got it. I think that's, that's a great point there. And I think something that's underrated about a lot of entrepreneurs is the sense that in the beginning, they were kind of, you know, an individual contributor times five in the sense that they weren't really doing everything. But the tough part about an entrepreneur is to be able to teach people to be those ICs and then be able to supervise and advise. Because I think something that is underappreciated about running your own business is the sense that someone could have some minor issue, say someone below you, an individual contributor but you know how to solve it in a really efficient manner because you've dealt with that issue before. And I think that's something about entrepreneurship that a lot of people may question, but it's something once you actually start building something, you're like, oh, I, I understand what, what they were talking about. So really great advice to note on there. Another thing that I wanted to get into, and again, with some of the clients that you've worked with, so you know, Bank of America, Mizuho, Exxon, are all clients that you've had. What does it take to keep a huge company agile? That's a phenomenal question, and it is a it is a question that uh, I that I the way I like to frame it, enlightened leaders at those companies work almost full time to keep themselves and their business agile. Mm-hmm. It is so easy to get consumed with some notion of corporate bloating, corporate oversight, corporate governance that just gets layered on and piled on and just making a major decision for instance takes an army of contributors and coordinating those guys getting the data getting the input getting it right and what happens is there's a propensity to want to take your decision process into a hundred percent completion mode Mm -hmm. well too many people will tell you that the 80-20 rule really applies here. When I see an opportunity, I can do my analysis about go or no go on that opportunity. 
and I can get 70 or 80% of my data that's going to inform my decision, I can get that quickly. Mm-hmm. Probably, if not hours, at, at least a few days, I'll have all that information in front of me. But to get that last 20 to 30% of data may take months to accumulate. Mm-hmm. And if you're culture legacy has been one of going for the 100%, you probably missed more opportunities than you took. And um, in in one of the names you mentioned, and I won't name name, but I'll just say it was on that list. The CEO is very sensitive and frustrated by his journey up the corporate ladder. When it finally became his turn to be in the lead seat, he said, we're going to stop the 100% methodology. He said, I want us embracing and shifting our culture where we're good at 70 or 80. If we've got 70 or 80% answer and it says green light go, we're going to go. And if we blow some or miss some, I think we'll win a lot more than we lose and we'll be fine. Because his, he did, he commissioned a big study of past events, and he realized that at the 70 or 80% mark, they had all the data and it would have said go, mm-hmm. but they didn't go because they didn't have the 100% data and they missed the opportunity. So what's really interesting about that, I think it's almost a, a smaller metaphor for this idea of a lot of companies are trying to go 100% and be green at everything. When if you try to kind of straddle too many functions at one time, you know, you're not going to be great at any of them, as opposed to really doing your best and being good at maybe 70 to 80%. And what's interesting, and I don't know any studies about this, but just something that I've been observing in corporate American entrepreneurship, when you kind of dedicate yourself to doing your best, and you know, you're not gonna, you know, you're gonna make mistakes. um, But you know, you don't stress about being perfect. I think objectively speaking, that results in more progress than trying to be perfect at once and really emotionally getting yourself uh, inflicted in many ways. So I think a great example there and an awesome example that you were able to bring up, but on a similar note, you know, speaking about agile, it just so happens to be that tech companies are seemingly the ones that are most, are the fastest moving, you know, with, with AI and everything going on. I don't want to bore listeners as they probably hear about a new AI product every single day. Right. But one company that's remained very agile and despite being one of the biggest companies in the world, you know, still moves very swiftly is Amazon. And I wanted to ask, even though Amazon is a tech company and has built this great culture, do you think that kind of agile culture is applicable to other industries or do you think it's exclusive to more technology oriented companies? Well, number one, what I would say is I, I think we've got to be sensitive and careful about methodologies that are good for one industry being applied to another. Um, The reason I say that specifically, I have had some bank clients who have attempted to say, we're going to change our whole organization to an agile culture, not just the tech piece, but the whole company. And I hear about everything they're doing to organize their communities and their scrums and all this stuff. And in the end, none of those projects have ever worked. And there's, that's another whole discussion we can have. But my point is, what is unique, I believe, about Amazon is that in, in what Bezos started, he never deviated from his original vision. Mm-hmm. 
I had a guest on my podcast who did a study and he wrote a book called The Bezos Letters. He looked at the 14 or maybe it was 16 years of when Jeff Bezos was chairman and his letter to shareholders year over year. For that whole run, the key messages about strategy, focus, culture that he wanted to build never changed. Now, the company exploded over that time period, obviously, but the those core principles and tenets never changed. So I think it was it was a very compelling story to know that if you're going to lead an enterprise, you can't keep flopping from back and forth this methodology, that methodology, you know. Agile's in today, it's going to be here for the next year, and then 18 months from now, you blow it up and you go do something else. Mm-hmm. It's that that creates a, a whipsaw effect in your team, and they get tired of it after a while. And then you make an announcement about a new direction you want to go, and they just yawn and roll their eyes and go, okay, whatever, boss, we'll do it. And, and that's a very negative culture to live in. Got it. So really interesting note on there. And I think maybe the broader theme is while might certain methodologies might not be applicable to industry to industry, leadership styles may be. And I think if you go from that leadership style and then apply it to relevant industry, uh, maybe that's when you can get those uh, great explosive results. And I don't want to promise anyone Amazon's growth is I think they're certainly an anomaly in the industry, but really a great note on there. To switch gears a little bit here, I saw something in your LinkedIn profile that I thought was really interesting. And one of the things that you mentioned kind of under the description of one of your companies is that there's a difference between a doer, an expert, and a leader. So I felt like it's only right. I have to ask in your eyes, what's the difference between those three? Well, you know, uh, you can start with what might be the intuitive answers. The doer is that person that is, and by the way, all three are very necessary in a healthy organization. The doer is is the person out on the proverbial front line. They may be out on the shop floor or in the in the lab or you know at the computer or whatever it is, and they're helping execute and deliver on your product or your service. And they're critically important. You want there. You want to attract people that can be, uh, you know, motivated and engaged. Um, as people kind of then progress up, I'll, I'll jump to the other extreme on the leader side. You know, organizations kind of where we started this discussion today, Daniel. You know, organizations that are growing with the number of people they engage uh, need leadership, and people have to be directed. People have to be. Um, encouraged and, and motivated. And I have a, I have a mantra that I've developed a long time ago. If you can successfully recruit good people to your organization, and I know that's a big if, but if you do, they want to do a good job. And it's on the leader to explain to them what good looks like mm-hmm. and what is the right answer and what is next and what is our focus. When a leader or manager fails to do that, people, good people that I'm talking about tend to do nothing. They don't do wrong things, but they just do nothing because they don't want to do a wrong thing, but they don't know what right looks like. So their only choice is to fundamentally do nothing. 
So if, if, if you're in an ownership or leadership position right now and you feel like your team is treading water, not doing anything, guess what, my friend, it's on you. You have failed in creating some form of clarity or focus for them to follow. So, you know, what's really interesting about that. I've actually had a lot of thoughts recently about recruiting. And I think, unfortunately, it was uh, speaking to someone uh, a few months ago. And he said that most people in corporate America are actually very unfulfilled with the jobs they do. And they're just kind of getting by, whether it's as an individual contributor or just as a manager. And that got me thinking, you know, a lot of times when we look at these applications, we look at a lot of job requirements, there's a laundry list of, of different requirements to have. You know, whatever happened to, and I would love to know your thoughts on this because, you know, the, the conversation you just said just really sparked this idea. But whatever happened to just having a job description of like, you know, this is who we're looking for. If you're this person, let us know and, you know, we'll let you know if you're fit for the job. I mean, I think I think that would just is a really modern and streamlined solution for a lot of these job applications today. I'd love to, to hear what you think about that. Well, uh, my quick thought on that is that sadly, our litigious society has impacted that. And you, you, you really don't get away anymore with some blanket generic job offering because it becomes a way for people to do very inappropriate hiring practices. Mm -hmm. And they're totally undefensible if, if you're ever charged with uh, like an EEOC complaint. Um, but it, it's caused people to try to get fairly specific. And as a recruiter friend of mine, many years ago, introduced me to the term purple squirrel. You know, you want to hire a purple squirrel for your job. Well, you got to define what a purple squirrel really does and how they act and what they do. And it, it, it gets to be a very narrow and very finite description. And again, from a legal defense standpoint, companies have to go there to try to defend what they're, who they think they're looking for and why they chose one person over another. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting point. So it sounds like if it wasn't, you know, people's really uh, litigious attitude, then maybe kind of jobs and applying to jobs would be much more streamlined. But then again, I'm no legal expert, just uh, a silent observer or an interested observer. So It'll be interesting to see how, how those uh, change in the future, especially kind of as there's small generational shifts. And uh, that's actually a good segue to the next thing that I wanted to ask, because a lot of things that managers or kind of more experienced leaders right now are dealing with is the new generation entering the workplace. And I'm sure you're familiar with kind of a lot of the bigger generational differences that may be between millennials and Gen Z and so forth. Um, but from your perspective, you know, how would you advise, you know, an executive leader with, let's just say, seasoned experience to manage the younger generation? Well, I always start, and, and by the way, I'll just preface and say that I take a very contrarian view to that. I uh, I get myself in trouble. We love, we, love, we love, you know, hard opinions on here because conflict leads well, to resolution. I, I get myself in trouble when I go to professional organizational networking events and I'm with a bunch of HR or even even really a, a bunch of my own leadership coaching colleagues. I argue that the, the so-called generational divide is a convenient excuse for not doing your job as a leader. And um, my challenge to leaders is know your people, period. 
And, and when you know your people, you're going to start to understand, okay, so-and-so is under 30 mm-hmm. and they have explained to me how they like to look at the world and how they look at our work. So I need to be able to respond slightly differently to keep them focused on what good looks like, what the clarity is of our mission, what direction are we trying to go. And it's true for every one of the generations that's in the workplace now. If you, if you as a leader are willing to be nimble and elastic about how you engage with your teams, you will quickly, not easily necessarily, but you will quickly overcome the so-called generational divide. And I point to an interesting text and I, I keep promising myself I'm gonna memorize it, but I haven't yet. Mm-hmm. There's a text that is in a very famous book But when you read the preface, it sounds like what could be a millennial manifesto. You know, people older than me are idiots. They don't understand me. They don't, you know, I wish they would just go away and let me do my work, blah, blah, blah. Well, it was written by Henry David Thoreau in 1863. (laughs) Talk about sign of the times. So my point is, I use that as my uh, reference point to say every generation has had a thought about the other generations. It's, it's nothing new under the sun. It might be worded differently. It might be communicated on a, on a different device, but it's still emotionally and psychologically the same. Mm-hmm. And as leaders, we can't use that as a convenient excuse to blow it off and say they're just difficult. Mm -hmm. We have to lean in. We have to learn our people and, and know what we want to get accomplished. So on that note, how would you advise a leader to really keep up with the times and get to know their people? Well, I I think first you, you've got to be able to engage and, and, and be relatable uh, I'll tell a quick story. One of the big brands that, again, on the list you mentioned earlier, they did a giant internal customer, not customer, but employee satisfaction survey thing, really elaborate, spent millions and millions of dollars getting it done. And one of the very interesting uh, conclusions was everybody at every level was asking that their boss at the level immediately above them be more relatable. (laughs) And it went all the way up. Mm -hmm. So even the guys that were really senior up here, you know, the people below them were saying, I wish he was more relatable, but he was saying, I wish my boss was more relatable. Mm -hmm. So there was this, this gap of um, that sense of even being able to talk to your boss about things So it starts with some really fundamental human relational issues. If you're not approachable, if you're not available, you'll never be relatable. So you've got to, you know, work through those early elements and and you got to ask yourself the question, what does that mean for me? And for the older folks that are in leadership that might be listening to this, I got news for you. If you grew up in a command and control mindset and that's what you're emulating today, stop it. <laughs> Quit it. <laughs> 
go another way. And if that's the only way you think you can operate, I think it's time for you to cash it out and move on. Yep. I think it's a, it's a great note on there. And I think there's a misconception. I think a lot of times maybe younger generations to be really brutally honest are labeled as, you know, more lazy or kind of don't want to work. And I think the more appropriate way to label it is that I think everyone needs a purpose. Everyone wants to move. Nobody wants to sit and be idle. I think, you know, human nature just prevents that. But I think because of generational differences and, you know, I don't know what causes them or this or that, I'm no expert there, but I think people just want to be able to work in a way that they find impactful. So I think a challenge to leaders would be to, you know, be able to, like you said, engage with the, the other generations, but also find out how to, you know, make sure that those generations see that their work is impactful. Cause I think that will motivate them better and ultimately kind of lead to more productivity for the company. So really great note on there. And I, I appreciate the advice on there. I wanted to switch gears a little bit here and just know your thoughts around kind of an upcoming development as I mentioned AI earlier. So from your perspective and, you know, as you've mentioned, you've gotten to work with some of the top dogs at a lot of these, you know, really great and large companies. Do you think AI is going to take away jobs or add jobs in the future? I think ultimately it's, it's going to create a little bit of a leveling effect. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I, and this is going to sound like a cop-out answer, and I certainly don't mean it to be, but I, I think it's going to do both. In some places, it's going to eliminate jobs. In others, I think it's going to create jobs. And, but I don't think that's universally true in one industry versus another I I think there's still a lot to be learned about it, and a lot of people are moving in a lot of different directions. I um, I was in a workshop last week, and one of the attendees happened to work for Microsoft on their AI team, mm-hmm. and it was fascinating talking to him about where they were going and what they were doing with it, and um, you know, you know. It's another topic for another day to go into all the details. And I, he didn't break any confidence, guys, all you Microsoft security mm-hmm. cops out there. He, he didn't tell any secrets. It, it was all very generic, but mm-hmm. it, it was pertinent to, to our discussion. And the point being, I think there's a wonderful use for AI to streamline information gathering back to my 70 versus 100% certainty. Mm-hmm. If we can accelerate the collection of good data to help inform our decisions, we don't have to have armies of analysts doing that for us. We can. So in that case, yes, there might be some jobs eliminated, but um, I think in other cases, it's only going to fuel our information and open up opportunities that will ultimately create jobs. I, you know, interesting note on there, and I agree with everything you're saying. I think in the short run, I think definitely it'll replace some jobs as a lot of those individual contributor jobs and a lot of that analysis jobs can be taken over. But I think in the long run, ultimately, it'll, the jobs it will add will probably offset the jobs lost because I think there's just going to be kind of the potential for greater impact to society. And I think people are going to naturally pivot to those kind of roles. And I think, one, that's good for people who want jobs, but I think, two, it's better for the broader economy as well. Since I just think, you know, a better economy and, and more jobs and more updated jobs and streamlined work, I think enriches everyone's lives. So I think in the long run, it'll be good. I just think it'll be tough for a lot of folks to bear with kind of the short run churn. But I think it's always good in these kind of things to keep a long term perspective. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But I wanted to get into a few parting notes here. There's actually a quote, uh, which I think you'll find really interesting, but 
it reads that the best leaders know how to follow. What do you think about that? Totally agree. I, uh, I was raised in a system mm-hmm. that taught us that. And um, it, uh, I was, uh, when I was in college, I went to Texas A&M and I was in the Corps of Cadets and I passed on an appointment to West Point Academy in favor of choosing to go to the Corps at A&M. For, for one big reason, I, and this is going to sound disparaging to some, and I don't mean it to be, but the system of the military academy is a meritocracy. Everybody is trying to rise up on the list, the order of merit list, and that's an individual accomplishment thing. But our system at A&M taught team performance. And the whole experience in the Corps as a freshman, you were taught first to be a follower. Mm-hmm. The premise was you'll never be a good leader until you know how to be a good follower. Mm-hmm. So that was something that has rung true to me. And a lot of the principles and ideals we were taught still resonates to this day. Mm-hmm. And I will tell a quick story. Sure. There's a group of us that were my freshman class in my particular assigned outfit in the core we still come together once a quarter and have lunch at a central meeting point in the heart of Texas. We, I mean, we drive for hours to get there, but once a quarter we all meet and it, it, it's a bond that we created over 50 years ago. It's still alive today. And when you've got some leadership people, people in leadership that have that kind of understanding of, uh, first learning to be a follower, you're, you're going to have a much better person to work for. I, I think that's a beautiful note on there and awesome that you guys are able to get the band back together and really appreciate your thoughts around that quote. And on a parting note here, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of these great companies, a lot of great entrepreneurs. From your perspective, what's one thing every entrepreneur or executive should do every day? I think they need to self-reflect. I, I think one of the most valuable moments anybody can do that is in a leadership position, and when you're an entrepreneur, you are de facto, you're in a leadership role. You need to evaluate how you did. And I used the phrase earlier, how do you show up? Well, you know, things are going to get busy. Things are going to get stressful. You, you might act and react uh, not in the best way all the time. So it, it's best to develop a habit of, at the end of the day, do a little self-reflection. Did I show up today, moment by moment, the way I want to show up? Mm-hmm. Was it consistent with my values, my principles, my beliefs? If it wasn't, I might need to go adjust. I, I might need to go backfill and you know maybe apologize or restate something or revisit it. But if you learn something that didn't work the way you wanted it to, tomorrow's a new day. You'll have a new chance to go get it right. Yep. Tomorrow's a new day. And I think one of the hardest things to think about for entrepreneurs, especially from the emotional perspective, is that, you know, one day is just a day. Tomorrow is, you know, can always be a better day. So to, to always strive for excellence and to yep. appreciate that answer and appreciate the time and all the wisdom you'd be able to give. And it's been an absolute blast. And really appreciate taking the time to come on the podcast. You bet. Thank you for listening to my discussion with Doug Thorpe. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.